Inside Kessler Foundation, a new podcast series that we're really excited to share with you. This is your host, Joan Banks-Smith, along with Carolee Ann Murphy. Throughout our podcast, we will be showcasing cutting-edge rehabilitation research in stroke, brain injury, multiple sclerosis, and spinal cord injury, and innovative programs that promote employment for people with disabilities. Kessler Foundation was recently named Best U.S. Nonprofit Organizations to Work For in 2016 for the fourth consecutive year and Best Places to Work in New Jersey in 2016 for the fifth consecutive year. Welcome to our first season, Episode 1. This episode will talk about 3D printing and rehabilitation research and how it's being used in innovative ways to aid Foundation biomedical engineers in our mobility lab. Later, a roundtable discussion increasing employment after spinal cord injury. We'll meet with three experts, Drs. John O'Neill, Trevor Dyson-Hudson, and James Mallet, who are collaborating on a major project aimed at increasing employment after spinal cord injury. Are you a rehabilitation research hero? The importance of contributing to multiple sclerosis research. Carolyn Murphy, communications manager at the foundation, speaks with Justin Stanley, our subject recruitment specialist, and talks about the importance of becoming a research participant for our ongoing MS studies. Closing out this podcast, we'll recap awarded research grants for the first quarter of 2016. Starting off our first episode, 3D printing and rehabilitation research. Earlier this year, we met up with Geith Andrewis, a postdoctoral fellow, to find out how 3D printing is changing rehabilitation research. Geith receives his postdoctoral degree from New Jersey Institute of Technology and is currently working on collaborative grants with Children's Specialized Hospital. Let's listen in as Carol Ann Murphy, our co-host, speaks to Geith about his role at Kessler Foundation. I wasn't hired in Kessler to work specifically on 3D printing, uh, but I actually have a 3D printer on my desk. Uh, it's a very useful tool. It's a device that allows researchers to, um, to have what, what, is, uh, you know, uh, what is cooking in their mind to be out as a physical model, uh, as a functional tool that allows us to utilize these functional parts and pieces uh, in our research for our mission uh, to, uh, to help patients with disability and be able to improve um, their quality of life. 3D printers currently are a very hot topic that many institutions, including uh, universities, uh, schools, are trying to uh, uh, accommodate for this technology and introduce this technology to their students, not only at the university or college uh, level, but also at the school uh, level. And this is very exciting, very important. So the beauty about 3D printing is that uh, you know, sometimes you talk to designers, they say, okay, you know, you know, I'm trying to design a functional part on the computer. Well, that's fantastic. To, to, to be able to uh, design a 3D design or a 3D part on a, uh, on a CAD, using CAD software on the computer is really useful. To actually, to be able to look at the part, uh, see how they fit together, to put an assembly uh, of several parts together is really helpful. But what's nice about 3D printers, they actually allow you to not only design what is uh, in your mind on the computer, but also to take those designs, throw them into a 3D printer, let it print for a couple of hours, and then have a physical part that you can physically be able to test, look at, and be able to uh, use for, what the, you know, for whatever you are thinking about uh, accomplishing. And that's on its own is a key uh, to uh, successful research, I believe. So how is it being used at Kessler Foundation in our rehabilitation research? At Kessler Foundation, I'm mainly hired to work on two uh, projects. And I'm in a joint uh, collaboration between Kessler Foundation and Children's Specialized Hospital. If you look at it, most of the state-of-the-art equipment that's being uh, available for our research it is mainly actually developed for patients or adults with disability. And when we deal with kids with disabilities, it's sometimes very difficult to actually be able to fit an adult size equipment 
on some little kid with disability. So that's, you know, that's an important factor. We've purchased a force sensor that is mainly being used to assess the level of spasticity about the knee joint in the body. To be honest with you, without the use of 3D printings, it wouldn't have been possible to actually implement this force sensor and to allow us to provide biomechanical assessment on children with cerebral palsy without 3D printing, it wouldn't have been done. Are there any other applications in terms of uh, grants at Kessler Foundation? We are in the process of trying to submit some future grants, hopefully, to, uh, that, that will heavily utilize uh, 3D printers uh, in terms of uh, using the 3D printers to come up with some assistive technology, assistive devices for patients with disabilities that will include uh, children with disability as well as adults with disabilities. Now, what about the... Um the material, because not everybody knows what materials used for 3D printing. That's a fantastic question, and I forgot to mention this, because most people out there print out of two main common, like, common uh, material, which are the ABS and PLA. These are fantastic material to uh, design a part. Is that plastic? It's plastic ABS and PLA. These are really good material to print designs out of that you can actually work with, but you can't apply heavy forces on them. Mm -hmm. The nicer material that I'm actually having good experience with, it's nylon. Nylon is much stronger than ABS or PLA. And what it allows us to do, not only to look at a very fancy, good-looking part that you actually take, peel off, off of the bed of the 3D printer, but you actually take that device and you're very sure that this piece is solid. You can put it into function, functional task with no problems, for the most part. If you've done the simulation uh, analysis on it properly, it should have much, uh, much longer durability than ABS or PLA, and that's fantastic. So that's on its own is a big advantage. Now 3D printers uh, pricing have gotten much, much, much lower than what it, what, what it was uh, about nine or 10 years ago. And they're only gonna get even better and cheaper. Well, I mean, you see it uh, advertised on TV now, you know, that you can buy a 3D printer and people are creating like little figurines all the way up to the type of work that you're doing joints, prosthetics. You do see uh, people are creating prosthetics for animals and for, uh, I think it's the University of Albany or some places doing a collaborative with creating prosthetics for hands for, for children. And I see, you know, I see wh why this is actually, uh, why this is happening. The reason for that, because it's, as you said, you're making prosthetics for animals, for kids with cerebral palsy, kids with TBI, kids with stroke, uh, adults with various types of disabilities. Now, if you think about it, for a, a, a prosthetic device company to invest and be specific to the sizes of a specific person, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be uh, able for a, a manufacturer to actually invest their time, uh, their effort into doing that. But for a specific individual to put in little time into designing those parts and be able to um, getting these uh, uh, functional printed parts uh, in-house is enabling these possibilities. And it's actually, it's opening up new paths for new technology, new ideas. Uh, I believe it's gonna improve, um, it's gonna improve the quality of research. So does the 3D printing come in with the biomechanical assessment? Is that where the... So 3D printing is a tool that allowed us to use, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, a force sensor to provide us with an assessment for spasticity level on the ankle and the uh, knee joints. And without it, we wouldn't have been able to find um, uh, the proper size per individual that we're trying to test uh, to look at these uh, outcome measures. So. You know, when I say full assessment, full biomechanical or, you know, biomechanical assessment. So that deals with kinematics, uh, EMG assessment. Uh, we look at spasticity level. We also, <clears throat> uh, uh, we also look at the relationship between neuromuscular and uh, biomechanical functionality of the lower extremities. 
Um, so this provides us with a complete picture to provide a proper assessment of the uh, usefulness of these uh, uh, rehabilitative devices. So the device that uh, you printed the day I was here, right. it had the four markers, and right. it was meant for a child. Correct. Those four markers are in a 3D space uh, as part of your assessment, is right. that? So, yes. So that particular part that was designed specifically for, um, uh, to look at the angular position of the knee joint as it's being rotated to uh, throughout the, uh, the space to different positions. And <clears throat> the way how this is being done, basically subjects uh, shank is being held by the force sensor, which is uh, fixed through a 3D printed part that goes on the person's shank, and an, experiment, an experimenter would uh, rotate and move the shank into different uh, positions, uh, full extension and full flexion, and then we look at the relationship between uh, the output out of this force sensor relative to the angular position out of the piece that you just you had just mentioned, which is the four markers, which provides us with uh, what we call trackable, to allow us to have a rigid body that provides X, Y, Z rotational angles about the knee joint. So w w part of what w what we do as researchers is we take this these are three outputs force output out of the force sensor. We take the angular position data out of this what we call again trackable. Which, which is made out of four separated uh, reflective markers. And we take the output out of the uh, uh, EMG. We blend all these outputs together and we are able to provide um, an assessment to evaluate spasticity and dystonia level about the knee joint, for instance. Similar case happens about the ankle joint as well. What about the um, XOGT research? How is 3D printing being implemented? So similar parts are going to be used to assess, um, to assess also spasticity level about the uh, knee joint. Uh, we haven't really started uh, working on the clinical trial for this particular uh, study. Uh, training for physical therapists have taken place, and hopefully we are very close to uh, uh, the timeline when we're going to start collecting data on uh, uh, children's with disability using the exo uh, robotic exoskeleton device. Uh, I'm looking forward to do this. As uh, my previous postdoc at NJIT as well, uh, I was mainly involved in the creation of some new robotic exoskeleton devices for lower and upper extremities. And to see uh, a commercially available state-of-the-art equipment uh, being used on children with, with uh, disabilities um, is really fascinating to me. And I'm really looking forward to, be, uh, to, to start data collection on uh, children with disabilities. The plan is to utilize the available 3D printer that we have in-house at Kessler Foundation, uh, be able to show how useful this technology is, uh, not only for functional pieces, but also to get functional pieces together and be able to come up with some uh, unique and novel solutions for rehabilitation to improve quality of life for individuals with disabilities. And that's a goal. Hopefully that's going to happen in the near future. And that is on the top of my list for my plans. So hopefully that happens at some point. Don't forget to check out research devices that Guy created using a 3D printer. Photos and a video of his work can be found at our podcasting website, kesslerfoundation.org forward slash inside podcast. A roundtable discussion, increasing employment after spinal cord injury. We'll meet with three experts, Drs. John O'Neill, Trevor Dyson Hudson, and James Malik, who are collaborating on a major project aimed at increasing employment after spinal cord injury. Dr. John O'Neill is Director of Disability and Employment Research, and Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson is Director of Spinal Cord Injury at Kessler Foundation. Dr. Malik is Director of Research and Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Indiana University School of Medicine and the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana. Carolyn Murphy sat down with our three experts to discuss this collaborative project. Dr. O'Neill, let's start by describing the scope of the problem and the data on returning to work after spinal cord injury? 
Well, the data on returning to work uh, after a spinal cord injury is um, uh, there's a very small proportion of the folks who do return to work after a spinal cord injury. One uh, review study on employment after SCI indicating that it was about 23% after 10 years. Yeah, something like that. 28%? 28%. Model system data? Yeah. Okay. So the scope of the, pro the problem is great. We had decided to um, um, focus on spinal cord injury and uh, bring some more vocational rehabilitation uh, services into inpatient. Um, and the inpatient stays are very short. Uh, so what we'll be doing is uh, obtaining people's interest and consent uh, to work with them while they're in inpatient, but primarily to follow them after they're discharged for at least two years with uh, pretty assertive um, uh, employment service coordination uh, efforts. So, and, and just for me to jump in, so John talks about this assertive employment effort. So I, one of the times that we met, John described this as back to the future. So I was injured about 23 years ago, and, and at that time, I was in the hospital for five months. And during that time, it allowed us to have the luxury of discussing me returning back, or what would I, at the time I was in medical school, and you know, you, when you have an injury like this, your whole life is turned upside down. And you wonder if you're even gonna be able to, to go back to work, let alone, you know, some people, I shouldn't say lucky, but are lucky enough, perhaps are in a vocation or in a, a direction where it's easy for them to easier for them to continue pursuing that that line of of work, and others have to totally reinvent themselves. So for me, I was in there long enough that that um, that I could meet with vocational counselors. There was a lot more support at the time through the hospital, through the state. There was coordination outside with the local advocacy groups. So it was a much more hand on, hands on, um, guided uh, a process. And today, now, um, in in now 2015, 2016, people are in the hospital for maybe two to three weeks if they're lucky. So there isn't time to even think about uh, work. You know, you're just trying to get your your life back in order. Your um, and and to th even think about vocational efforts, so something. You know, like that. I think that's a very good model, though, to you kind of put it on people's radar that this is a possibility, even when they're inpatients. Because, because mm -hmm. as you know, I mean, our, our experience has been more with the brain injury population, and you know, you 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 gentlemen are translating into spinal cord. But when we started this, it was about 20 years ago, and we had some time on the inpatient unit to talk with people with brain injuries. Uh, you know, these these days, I'm not sure how practical it is because often when they're getting inpatient rehab, people are really just kind of starting to process things cognitively. So I'm not sure if we put it on their radar, it would stick, you know. Mm -hmm. But but I think with spinal cord injury, uh, since people are less cognitively impaired, you have that opportunity. And you know what we found back when we started it is uh, it gave people a lot of hope. You know, that this, and again, you know, we, we made it pretty clear that it might be a while before we're really getting mm -hmm. serious about back to work. But just, you know, for them and their families to know this is a possibility really gave them a lot of hope. And I think sure. it's a very, very positive thing. No, and, and the families are often thinking about this. So the person who's injured is focused on the rehabilitation and the changes that have happened with their, their injury. But their, their family member may be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is either the primary breadwinner or a major contributor to the income for the family. Uh, how, what are we gonna do? And so they're meeting with members of the team, um, you know, to the case management team. And so the employment service coordinator is this person who's part of the grant is um, establishing a connection with that newly injured person or the family to just say, hey, there are these opportunities. You know, once you're discharged, once you're home, we can continue to talk and have an ongoing conversation about, uh, you know, returning to work and, 
and uh, what are the services that are available for you out there? You know, another benefit of getting engaged with them early on was it also gave us a chance to talk to their employer. Mm -hmm. and, you know, at a time when, especially it was a relatively you know small business, you know, uh, when the employer was very much on their side, you know, wondering, you know, what's going to happen. And, mm -hmm. to, and again, we kind of engaged them and say, you know, maybe, maybe a few months before we're back in touch about getting back to work, but, you know, could, could, you know can we get in, in touch with you? And, you know, and, and again, you know, they're, they're pretty, pretty willing to help out at that point. And, sure. and just making that contact made, a, I think, a big difference. Because I think in our initial brain injury sample, about 40% went back to their former employers. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, sometimes not in the same job. You know, they may not have been able to do the same job. Mm -hmm. but, but their employer was engaged enough that they were willing to give them a job and, yeah. and work with them in terms of accommodations mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, we've seen some instances of that in spinal cord injury as well. I mean, if, they're, if somebody's lucky enough to have been in a field that, and, and then sometimes with a larger company, they will accommodate them in another mm -hmm. office or somewhere else. Yeah. So. Trevor, could you um, talk about the partners in this project and uh, the role that the uh, model system will play? So this, so the partners in this project are um, the Kessler Foundation, Kessler Institute. Of course, this is a grant provided by the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation, um, which um, I can go into a little further um, later. Um, I'm sure I'm going to forget somebody, so I'm going to feel bad about this. But um, also joining us, well, of course, Jim uh, Malik from uh, um, from Indiana University, and then uh, New Jersey Department of Vocational Rehabilitation Services, United Spinal Association, also, and uh, each of these people are is providing kind of a unique piece to this puzzle. So, um, uh, of course. This is all coming through our model system, which is through Kessler Foundation and Kessler Institute. So somebody who's newly injured, um, there'll really be this team effort to, to address their vocational needs. So there'll be the grant is helping to support someone who's an employment service coordinator. Um, as we already mentioned, this person will meet with the newly injured person or their family. and. Uh, We'll be working with, you know, with the New Jersey Department of Vocational Rehabilitation Services to identify what are the outside resources, vocational resources. We're working closely with Brian Fitzgibbons, who is with uh, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation Services. We're also working with United Spinal Association. They've developed an employment peer mentor program that actually was a program funded by the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation as part of a sustained impact project. Um, so we're partnering with them to, you know, kind of bring what they've developed to help support what we're doing with these individuals. All right, Dr. O'Neill, can you tell us how long this project is funded and what outcomes will determine efficacy? Okay. Well, this is a three-year project. Uh, the Craig H. The Nielsen Foundation is providing us 300000 over a three-year period. And um, the funding is uh, primarily picking up the, the cost or uh, a lot of the cost or all of the cost in the beginning of the employment service coordinator. And then um, after a year and a half or two years, <coughs> the uh, Department of Vocational Rehabilitation in New Jersey is uh, uh, going to provide us funds to continue uh, that person's salary over time because what the Nielsen Foundation wants to do with this particular grant mechanism they have is to create a project that um, improves quality of life um, and is sustainable after the Nielsen Foundation funding is over. Um, and we have a target of working with 50 individuals over the three years. Um, um, and uh, I forget exactly what our target is in terms of return to 
employment, but we're hoping, I think, at least 50 percent will, will be uh, within a two-year period uh, will be uh, returning to work or school, as the case may be. It's all about the development of human capital, which includes education as well as employment. Um, you know, our, our hope, uh, the other, another aspect of this grant, which is very important, is our partnership with Dr. Malik and his team. Um, when we first contacted Jim, uh, he uh, let me know that uh, they had been thinking uh, in Indiana of, um, of applying this model to their SCI patients as well. And so this was a nice opportunity for our collaboration. And, um, and there's, a, there's a, a, a very substantial uh, uh, manual that uh, the people in Indiana have for the implementation of this kind of intervention uh, with folks who have TBI. And it's being, uh, it's being used throughout the state um, and by, by their vocational rehabilitation program. And we're going to work together in terms of um, modifying, adapting the manual for SCI, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Dr. Malik, can you talk a little bit about resource facilitation, the integrated model for this project, um, and s some of the experiences and successes you've seen with it in the brain injury population? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's basically a very common sense kind of whatever it takes model, you know, and, and that is really the essence of it. Uh, it's to help the person, you know, with brain injury or spinal cord injury in this case, uh, make the connections they need in order to have a successful return to work. And uh, so, you know, that may mean do they need a little more rehab? It may mean, do they need some way to get to work? You know, they may not be able to drive at this point. Uh, it may mean making a connection for those first job interviews. You know, in brain injury, we'd often uh, hook people up with a job coach uh, who would assist them, you know, uh, on, on site to relearn some of the aspects of the job that they were doing. Uh, you know, in spinal cord injury, I would imagine it means many physical adaptations. You know, are they able to get to the place where the work is done? You know, and what what kind of adaptations need to be made to accommodate their wheelchair, their ability to go to lunch, you know, their ability to use the restroom facilities. You know, all those things are not necessarily standard in small businesses. So I, I you know, I could go on and on, but you know, the the job of the person in that case coordination role or resource facilitation role is really to work with the person who's injured to figure out, you know, what are their goals and what do they need to get there in a very practical way and help them put those things in place. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think for, for a lay person, sometimes the reaction is, why do you need somebody like that? You know, why, you know, why, why can't they just do it? Or at the very least, why can't their family just do it? And you know, our experience is that, in fact, <clears throat> many people, and you know, I'll include myself, just aren't equipped to do all this legwork, you know, all this phone work, and and to really, uh, you know, put a focus on the things that they need. And you know, when you think about people who are newly injured and their families, you know, in in many, many, many cases, maybe all, I think a lot of their focus is just getting through the day, you know, and dealing with, with you know, the, the, the very pragmatic things that, that you have to deal with with a new injury. Uh, so, you know, putting another thing like this on their plate just becomes impossible. And, you know, that was our experience in brain injury because for years, you know, we would, you know, when they left the inpatient unit, we'd give them the, the, a card that showed them how to get to the, uh, the, the uh, state vocational counselor's office which in fact was about two blocks away from the hospital. And what we found out is 90% of the people never got there. And if the ones who did got handed a sheaf of, of farms to fill out, 
that completely discourage them. <laughs> and, you know, we're absolutely necessary, but completely uh, discouraging. And so, you know, they would take those home and throw them in the drawer someplace, that would be the end of that. You know, again, by introducing a person like the resource facilitator who can get them over to the voc counselor's office, help them with those forms, you know, get the medical data that they need to get into the VR system, and then, you know, like I said, follow them through, through all these pragmatic kind of uh, situations to figure out who can help them make the connections they need get, to get back to work make, just made a huge difference. So, you know, the rates of, of unemployment among brain injury are similar to those for spinal cord, you know, 30%. Uh, 40% at best, you know, if you follow people over a long period of time, whereas with a resource facilitation model, we're getting, you know, more like 75, 80% back to work. So basically doubling the, the work rates. And I would imagine, this, you know, we'll see similar results with spinal cord injury. Well, we know from our Kessler Foundation Employment Survey that people with disabilities are striving to work. So we know yeah. that that desire is there. Uh, I think anyone who's ever job hunted in their life understands the challenges mm -hmm. of that process and would have to understand that people with disabilities have even more challenges mm -hmm. in what's already a very challenging process. So it sounds to me like this project is going to fill a tremendous need in facilitating those people who want to work and are striving to work and helping them channel their energies and their efforts so that they achieve success. Yeah. You know, another uh, role of the resource facilitator is to help the person with injury communicate with the potential employer and also kind of address some of the, you know, m misconceptions and, and fears that the employer might have, you know. I mean, brain injury, it seemed like everybody is worried that they were going to have a seizure at any time or, or run wildly through the plant, you know, or lose control, and, and, you know, that just never happens. And, you know, for, for uh, our, our resource facilitator to be able to say, you know, number one, that's not going to happen, and number two, if it does, give us a call and we'll be right down, <laughs> I mean, made a huge difference, you know. And, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I mean, no offense to, to uh, these employers, I mean, these are just common misconceptions. I imagine there's similar ones in spinal cord injury, but again, to address those uh, kind of preemptively uh, could make it make a huge difference and kind of get the the employer on board. You know, in fact, the statistics show that people with disabilities are excellent employees. You know, and and uh, community and there's also some financial benefits to employers to hire people with disabilities. So, you know, then, then to make the future employer aware of all those those benefits can make a big difference. Also, would anybody like to add anything? One little thing I would like to add, I've been following Dr. Malik's work for quite a while and um, just as a person who is interested in brain injury and employment or employment with any disability, uh, disabled population, I was always impressed by the fact that at least in the beginning it was an early intervention during the inpatient stay and I think we're beginning as as a as a community as a nation to begin to realize that early intervention is extremely important. Um, a lot of people slip on to the social security roles, disability social security roles, um, simply because there isn't that early intervention, that attempt to do what you need to do in order for the person to go back to their same employer maybe in the same job or a different job. Um, so the early intervention aspect always interested me. Um, and it's also uh, an intervention that's a light touch. It's not, <clears throat> it's not throwing a lot of preconceived services uh, in a very structured, highly structured model. Uh, it's doing what's necessary for the individual and then coordinating the services in the community. Um, and I would venture to guess that if you did a cost-benefit analysis of a highly structured approach like supported employment versus resource facilitation, 
you would find that the costs would be less with resource facilitation and the outcomes would be no worse and maybe better. So. No, I'd just like to emphasize that part of it too is that it really is the job of the resource facilitator to facilitate, right. not to direct. So, uh, and I and I believe that's a, important to the success because yeah. you know it, it has to be a person's job and a you know a, a job that they want and, and their right. own goals. Right. And, exactly. Yeah. And just to add on to what Jim and John have said too, I mean, what's nice uh, this this the the perp this grant is really bringing individuals from all the key uh, players in vocational services for people with disabilities, in this case spinal cord injury, but there are people here who are, are there to provide service for people. Um, and sometimes it's just connecting those dots. So there's people who know what to do, how somebody can work, but still qualify for benefits um, and how to do that within vocational services. There's a great resources provided through United Spinal Association, and uh, having this person who's, you know, the employment service coordinator can connect these individuals with the person with spinal cord injury so that they can get back to work. For more information about this study, go to our website at kesslerfoundation.org forward slash inside podcast. Kessler Foundation is a major center for cognitive research in multiple sclerosis, the most common neurological disorder among young people. We're inside Kessler Foundation with Justin Stanley, Research Recruitment Specialist. Justin, tell us about our studies aimed at improving treatment for individuals with cognitive deficits due to MS. Some of the work that you're doing in recruitment for studies in MS, the focus of the work which specializes in cognitive rehabilitation research. So can you talk a little bit about cognition, cognitive rehabilitation strategies, and the, and the research studies being done at Kessler Foundation? Multiple sclerosis, or MS, is a condition of the nervous system. It has a, a real widespread impact on cognition. It has an impact on emotional function. It has an impact on fatigue. When we talk about cognition, we're talking about the ability to to think, so to kind of reason through, plan step by step, we're talking about the ability to learn new information and remember what you've learned. So it's, it's not an abstract concept. It really relates to day-to-day -day what people need to do to take care of their family, to get the kids off to school in the morning, to be successful at your job. And one of the real difficult aspects of MS is that it, you know, can have a, a very rapid onset and a rapid change in people's abilities, or it can have a more slow, gradual onset. So what happens to people is that they are trying to stay in their life, live their life the best way they can, stay at work, stay in school, help their families, but because they're having problems with cognition, which can be either immediate and severe or, or, or very gradual but still severe, they find that they have to stop doing these things that are so important to them. And what we are doing at Kessler Foundation is studying new ways to help people with MS restore function and improve their cognition so they can get back into the swing of things and get back to doing the daily tasks which are important for them. Some of our MS studies look at fatigue as a major factor that impacts cognition. Uh, some of our studies look at the speed with which a person can learn new information and access the information they've learned. And we're looking at treatment methods to improve these very concrete aspects of cognition, these aspects of cognition that really connect to things people do day to day. And now I'd like you to talk to our listeners who have MS or have a loved one who has MS. And what is the message that you want to get across to them about research and them, at research and what it can do for them? One thing I'd like to get across is that there's an image of research as just being about learning about a condition 
right? So taking asking questions about what a condition does in kind of in an abstract way. What's, you know, how do the nerve cells degenerate in MS or what medications can be effective for MS? What the kinds of questions that our researchers ask are questions that are not different from what the individual with MS might want to learn about their condition. What is it about um, fatigue in MS or the ability to cope with MS that can help a person get back to work? That's an example of a question that our researchers are asking. Or can this specific kind of treatment, which you know uses a computer program, can that help someone with MS be able to think more quickly so that they can get back to work or get back to school or helping their family out? Uh, these are the kinds of questions that our researchers ask, and I think that's what makes our research so unique. It's really focused on practical outcomes for people. Um, we are testing cutting-edge treatments that can potentially benefit people with these symptoms, and we're inviting the community of people affected by MS to learn more about our research and get involved so that we can help answer these questions and so that potentially you might benefit from learning more, participating in our research, and as a whole, the broader community of people with MS can benefit because these questions have been addressed. How do people find out more about participating in research studies? Well, they are certainly welcome to give me a call. I'm always happy to talk about our studies and to listen to people affected by MS and their caregivers about what they're going through and how our studies might be relevant to them. Uh, they are also welcome to visit our website where we've posted a lot of information up about the work that we're doing and how folks can get involved. Let's talk about a very common symptom for people who have MS, cognitive fatigue, which can be very disabling and debilitating and a real obstacle to the kind of activities all of us have to do in our daily life, including our jobs. Cognitive fatigue is something that can really impact anybody, even if they don't have MS or another medical condition. Think about when you wake up in the morning after not having gotten enough sleep the night before, or if you're sleep deprived, uh, you're gonna drink a lot of coffee or a lot of tea to try and get through the day. And even so, you're still gonna have trouble, for instance, getting the right words out. Uh, you're going to have trouble following up on your goals, following up on your plans, because it's gonna seem to take so much effort, more effort than it did before. So imagine feeling this way all the time, even if you're, you're drinking two or three cups of coffee a day or getting the right amount of sleep. You still feel like you're in a fog and that the words aren't coming quickly enough or that the reactions aren't coming quickly enough. So this is how a lot of people affected by MS describe themselves. They describe themselves as being in a, in, in a fog, constantly tired, constantly fatigued, not just physically but mentally. And Kessler Foundation recognizes that this is probably one of the most debilitating symptoms because in our modern-day society where we everyone is expected to multitask, you've got to have one eye on your phone, you've got to have one eye on your computer, and you've got to have attention on everything else that you have to deal with for your job. That cognition and cognitive energy is a really stretched resource for the normal person. So for a person with MS, there's even more of a need to learn more about fatigue and find ways to treat it so that they can be successful at work, so that they can do the things that they need to do for themselves and for their family. Another common symptom, which is also under-recognized in the MS population, and that's uh, difficulties with emotional processing, which means people have difficulty understanding the emotions of others. Can you talk a little bit about what type of problems that leads to in daily life for people with MS and why it's important to research that? Well, thank you for bringing this up, Caroline, because this really is an under-recognized symptom. So emotional processing, you know, the word is not one that we often encounter in our day-to-day -day life. Um, but like you said, very simply, it just means being able to recognize the emotions that other people have. So for most of us, um, 
even for people when they are early in the course of their MS condition, this is something that is really taken for granted. Your boss comes in. They want to talk to you about something. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to look at their face. You're going to try and figure out, are they upset? Does this seem like a small thing or a big thing? Uh, you're going to look at their eyes. You're going to look at their face. You're going to look at their mouth. All these little cues are going to tell you how that person might be feeling towards you so that you know what to expect and what to say. MS in attacking the brain and attacking brain function affects this ability. It makes it harder to tell what people are feeling as a result of looking at their face. So the way that this plays out for the person with MS is increased confusion and uncertainty about how people around them are feeling. So it's very easy, I think, once you've set up that concept to imagine how it could affect someone in their daily life that you don't know how the boss feels about you when they come in to tell you that they need to talk to you about something. Or your spouse is suddenly a much more uh, mysterious person to you because you can't tell if they're upset at you, if they're happy with you. The intensity of their emotion seems different. Uh, over time, we find that people with MS who are affected by this will tend to isolate themselves and avoid talking to other people, even loved ones, because this is becoming so difficult to deal with. At Kessler Foundation, this is something that we really want to understand more because we recognize that it can affect almost one in three people with, with MS. And certainly we also want to find ways to treat this so that the, these difficulties with emotional processing um, don't continue to have this debilitating impact that they do now. A common symptom of MS, and one that everyone can relate to, and that is uh, memory difficulties. Everyone has experience at some point with problems with their memory. For most people, it's on a temporary basis, or it's perhaps aggravated by you know fatigue or a medication. This can be a real issue for people with MS, and also very disabling and has an impact on daily lives and activities. So let's talk a little bit about memory issues in MS and the type of research that Kessler Foundation is doing to address them. Memory loss is something that I think everybody can identify with, both young and old. And some of it relates to just the demands of an information society of needing to be on top of you know, all these different social media channels, um, trying to manage things in a multitasking way to do multiple things at once. So we tend to forget things that we don't attend to as closely. And sometimes it surprises us um, whether or not we're affected by a disability that we didn't retain something in memory that we were supposed to, a name, a phone number, a piece of information, because we were attending to something else. So this happens to everybody old and young. And for most people, it tends to be pretty easily rectified. You have some systems in place. You, you write things down. You cover your desks in sticky notes like I do. You find some way to manage it. For people with MS, there is a often profound decline in memory um, ability that comes along with the progression of the disease. And I think something that's very troubling for people affected by MS is that the degree to which they have memory loss is often much greater than it would be for other people their age. So we're talking individuals who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are having profound problems with both short-term memory or just, you know, remembering something that was said to you within the past couple minutes or hours. And even as the disease goes on, long-term memory or important facts and information that you've learned years ago, and this can be really debilitating for people. It can certainly keep them from succeeding at work. Um, it can potentially stop people from being able to drive or being able to go out into their community. And again, you know, you, you see people become isolated as a result of their memory problems. And this is something that I think is the worst outcome. Um, at Kessler Foundation, 
because we research cognition and memory because we're looking at these abilities of the mind and brain to help the person go through their daily life, to remember, to plan, to learn. We're very interested in finding ways to treat the memory problems that are caused by MS. So we're doing some research that involves a, uh, a computer intervention, for example, to try and help people increase the speed with which they are taking in and learning new information and increase their ability to retain that information. And we're really hopeful that by studying the effects of this treatment on people with MS, we can find a way to increase or strengthen the current cognitive rehabilitation treatments that are out there to be more helpful for memory problems uh, because this is going to affect so many people who are affected by MS. For more information or to become a research participant, call 844-KF-STUDY or email us at inforesearch at kesslerfoundation.org. That's inforesearch at kesslerfoundation.org. We'll close out this episode with awarded research grants for the first quarter of 2016. A total of three grants were awarded to Kessler Foundation, totaling almost $2.2 million. Two grants were awarded to our mobility research and include next generation of robotic exoskeletons to improve mobility and to enable safer, more independent functioning for people with spinal cord injury, muscular dystrophy, and stroke. A joint team from Kessler Foundation and the New Jersey Institute of Technology is developing new applications for wearable robotic exoskeleton devices with a $5 million federal grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. The second grant awarded for mobility research to help clinicians design more effective rehabilitation treatments for patients with SCI. This NIH R21 grant was awarded to Dr. Tony Jang from our Human Performance Engineering Lab. And the third grant for MS research, Drs. Helen Genova and Jean Langenfelder recently received a $650,000 grant from the National MS Society to examine the effects of an intervention aimed at improving emotional processing abilities in individuals with MS. Be sure and check out our website for detailed grant information at kesslerfoundation.org forward slash inside podcast. Be sure and come back for episode two, where we'll check out our community employment grants at work. Grantee Spotlight this episode is Jewish Vocational Service of Metro West, East Orange, New Jersey. We'll meet with Hatel Patel, Manager of Rehabilitation Services, as she fills us in on how JVS is transitioning from center-based workshop activities to integrated employment opportunities for people with disabilities with funding from Kessler Foundation. Our research spotlight brings us to our stroke research, where we meet up with Drs. A.M. Barrett and Peggy Chen and Kim Reha on measuring spatial neglect during activities of daily living. Then we'll meet with Justin Stanley about the importance of contributing to traumatic brain injury research. This episode will also include segments from our newest series, My Life as a Research Assistant, and 2016 Second Quarter Awarded Research Grants to Kessler Foundation. Be sure and check out our Inside Kessler Foundation website for additional media that includes audio clips, videos, photos, supporting content, and links at kesslerfoundation.org forward slash inside podcast.